0: And when you talk to, say, you know, 18 to 20-year-olds about, you know, from a privacy perspective, what concerns you more, that Facebook is mining your information or Google is, you know, reading all your Gmails um, and using that information for targeted advertising or the fact that your mom might decide to friend you on Facebook. And it's mom (laughs) friending you on Facebook that is (laughs) met with, you know, abject horror
1: Welcome to The Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. It is 2020, a slightly new podcast. I'm George Comiti.
2: I'm Ashley Stone.
1: And this is a new year, new edition, more like new format, new guests. We're going to talk to not just cybersecurity leaders, we're talking to business leaders, executives, marketers, everyone who is touching digital technology in a way that is either driving business forward or confronting the challenges that come with it. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Tom Dukes.
0: Thanks, George. Very happy to be here.
1: Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, we got a lot of questions, not a lot of time, so we should get started right away.
2: Yes. You are a cyber policy expert. You've served as a U.S. military officer, a diplomat, a cyber crime prosecutor. Can you tell us about your journey?
0: Yeah. So um, it's been largely uh, an accidental, but uh, an and kind of serendipitous journey into cyber. I, you know, I grew up, um, we hear that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a pretty common experience. (laughs) I mean, I grew up at a time where, you know, pre pre email, pre internet, uh, being widely used and really only got exposed to it, uh, in college where, you know, like outside of a computer science class, you didn't see, you know, anything related to computers and, And as I went through uh, school, law school, uh, still, you know, no one had uh, laptops. We had a few odd uh, folks in classes with big, clunky, you know, early 1990s laptops clacking away. That looked like Uh, briefcases. It looked like briefcases and and generally uh, disturbed everyone else around them. And, of course, now you go, when I teach and go back into the classroom um, at, say, the UVA law school where I was a student, every single student has a laptop and no one seems to take notes uh, by hand anymore. But, you know, the journey for me was that I, uh, after law school decided to join uh, the air force as a judge advocate, because uh, I didn't really have a lot of desire to go into a law firm and do transactional stuff. I Mm. wanted to have adventure uh, also uh, at a perk of not having to worry about what to wear to work each day because (laughs) I had a uniform and, um, and so I spent uh my early years in the Air Force as a mostly as a criminal prosecutor doing a lot of uh drug and also sex crime cases. And in the sort of late 1990s, we started to see um in more and more criminal investigations that digital evidence was uh, an important component of it. So for instance, you know, people were meeting in chat rooms and mm-hmm. then uh from there meeting in real life and having, you know, criminal activity uh, take place. So I became one of the people who knew how to take an email or uh, information from a, you know, a Yahoo or, or AOL chat room and uh, use it in a, in a criminal investigation and a criminal trial. So I just sort of, again, n- never planned it. it. It just sort of became an area uh, where I, I gained some experience and became kind of the go-to guy. In the Air Force, and from from there, I ended up going to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, which is their version of the FBI, handling all the major criminal investigations and counterintelligence investigations. And that was when I got exposed to uh, cybercrime and 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 kind of uh, high level nation state related. Uh, computer hacking into Department of Defense networks and mm-hmm. the like, and spent a couple of years really immersed in in there. And as part of that job, made a lot of connections um, across the military and outside in other parts of the government, and that sort of naturally uh, led to the the jobs that I had after I left the military full-time, so at the Department of Homeland Security as they were first standing up, and then more relevantly at the U.S. Department of Justice in their at that time, fairly new computer crime and intellectual property section. What what year was that thereabouts? So I joined, um, I left active duty in the military in 2004, spent uh, most of the year at the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. and then in 2005 joined uh, the Justice Department. Okay.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, in a storied career that spans kind of like the key cyber topics of our time, uh, spanning everything from cybercrime, as you said, but now stretching into free speech, human rights, basically the information flow across borders, given that perspective, what are you seeing as trends on the global stage, uh, whether it's in a bilateral multilateral context?
0: Yeah. So you know, one of the ways I try to frame this for uh, my students when I you know, teach kind of I have a couple different uh, sort of overview of cyber law and policy courses that I've, I've taught at, at the University of Virginia and also um, at the University of Tartu in Estonia. And the way I like to try to frame this is, you know, give some historical perspective and kind of issue perspective. And so if you go way back in time to, you know, 2011, Uh, that's the first time that any country ever tried to come up with a a comprehensive strategic approach to cyberspace, Mm -hmm. including organizing all the issues, most of which you just mentioned. And so the U S actually in 2011, put out a presidential strategy for cyberspace that's similar to many of the other uh, national security strategies or economic strategies that you see. And, what it tried to do was frame the the issues around cyberspace in a way that um, made sense in terms of uh, governments engaging with each other, mm-hmm. where and how uh, civil society, academia, uh, private industry, and individuals plugged into to all of these issues. And to try to create kind of lanes in the road so that policymakers, government officials, et cetera, would sort of know who's responsible for what and, and kind of how to divide that up. So one of the big trends that, that I think we've seen is over essentially you know, the last decade, that that approach has become the norm in terms of how, whether you're at the United Nations or you're engaging you know, in government dialogues with mm-hmm. Russia, China, Australia, the UK, Japan, that we all frame the issues in roughly the same way and that there have become settled places in the international uh you know sort of environment like at the United Nations certain parts of the UN handle cyber warfare other parts of the UN discuss cyber crime and yet others you know for instance the human rights commission is where all the discussion around freedom online and and similar issues now take place so so kind of this evolving and kind of creation and agreement globally around how to discuss the issues um, and where to discuss the issues has been one of the big trends associated with that has been this ongoing discussion that often happens around issues of internet governance. And these are, you know, all the rules that are the international standards that are set that tell you, um, you know, how to set up everything from telecoms, networks, traditionally to, um, you know, what should be the global standards for, operating systems, for protocols, on how the internet operates, for cybersecurity and the like. And one of the big trends over the last few years has been um, whether and how to define and, and give roles to governments and particularly industry. So most of the international standards we have around cybersecurity, most of the, the core technology was developed in the United States or Europe. In the '60s and '70s and '80s, mm-hmm. and what that means is, most up to this point, most of the key global you know players in terms of industry around cyber and computing in general, and telecommunications, have been based in the U.S. or Europe. And as countries like China and and others have um, emerged and started to create their own industries around this, there's been a real kind of tension. Globally, over um, whether the existing, uh, you know, standards, for instance, are really um, should be applied to the rest of the world, or whether they're essentially U.S. and European created standards Indeed. that benefit us and our our industry, and the traditional approach by many countries, particularly the Chinas and Russias of the world, has been these kinds of issues should be decided by governments alone in settings like the United Nations. And there really should not be a role for industry as part of these discussions. And that's the, sort of the multilateral governments only should mm-hmm. talk about this. And the US has been a big proponent, um, and our, our close partners have been big proponents of a multi, multi-stakeholder multi approach, which means that industry and academia and civil society should all have a seat at the table and have an equal voice in shaping uh, how the technology evolves, how the standards evolve, um, as opposed to you know trying to regulate this the way for instance we 've traditionally regulated uh, telecommunications right
1: I think without going too far down a philosophical rabbit hole that's that approach is clearly informed by the way the governments of those nation states also conceive of the role of government, whether it's a very top down approach or whether it's um, formed from the bottom up, right? So it's like a, a worldview question. Um And Ashley and I are very intrigued by this idea of crafting an international order or um, extending the existing international norms into cyberspace. We've brought it up with a number of people. Um Most prominently was Miko Hyponen of F-Secure who pointed out, you know, one of the issues there is that you... You don't have the same transparency, right? When it comes to, for example, conventional arms, we have a pretty good read on whether it's through treaties, intelligence, or satellites, you know, the number of tanks that Russia has, the number of aircraft carriers that China has, the number of nuclear warheads. But when it comes to a cyber arsenal, for example, no one knows what anyone has, and they may be more incentivized to use it because if it's a vulnerability, let's say the crypto API in Windows 10, for example... You are tempted to use it before it gets patched or fixed so i I was curious if you have seen in on the front lines how people are grappling with that you know the conundrum of trying to extend an international order that doesn't it's not you can't layer it on perfectly in the same ways
0: yeah that's one of i agree i think that's one of the more interesting um both you know sort of academic theoretical mm-hmm. areas, but also practical real world um, areas of, of how do you apply these new cyber technologies in, um, you know, in, in, do they fit into the existing frameworks that we have or do we need um, an entirely new set of rules? That's usually how things get, get framed. And there has been a lot of work um, again primarily by governments over the last decade or so to try to uh reach some international agreement on for instance can you take the existing international law that applies to uh armed conflict and just apply it to whatever might happen in terms of cyber mm-hmm. um, warfare by by uh militaries and the US and and you know all of our partners and allies have generally said yes that's you know there's nothing different about uh, cyber warfare than there is, you know, land, sea, air, or space. Um, the Russians and the Chinese have led a, a kind of a, a counter effort, which is to say, uh, this is a whole new area that requires a completely different set of international norms and, and and rules. And you know, a lot of that appears to be driven by a perception that the U.S., at least up to this point, has had a huge uh, head start in, and and mm-hmm. a superiority advantage over. Ah, uh, particularly Russia and and in uh, and China, um, but what's happened, particularly in, over just the last two or three years, is you've seen uh, again industry uh, flexing their 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 muscles a lot more, um, and you've seen a lot of calls by you know sc- cybersecurity experts and and uh, and others um, influencing the debate to say essentially. Hey, governments alone shouldn't be deciding this. And so, for instance, Microsoft at RSA, you know, I guess three years ago proposed um, essentially a new global treaty um, around uh, a number of things, including use of force in cyberspace. Mm. And and you know, in in this framework that they they were promoting, it would include a a seat for you know entities like uh, Microsoft at at the table with governments deciding on what the rules of, you know, cyber warfare should be. Um, But kind of behind the scenes, there has been a lot of progress, um, for instance, in the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which was one of those Cold War entities stood up after Mm -hmm. World War II to help manage uh, conflict across the Atlantic um, they created many of the the norms and rules that guided how we navigated successfully through uh, the Cold War in terms of nuclear arms control and, and communications. And a lot of those have been uh, applied now to cyberspace. And the U.S. has a number of uh, bilateral agreements with, for instance, Russia, where we've recreated a lot of the same things from, um, you know, phones on senior officials' desks at the White House mm-hmm. to you know uh, ways in which one can report and share information about, hey, we just saw a hack here, um, in the same way that we might see what looks like a missile launch from Siberia. We have a way to contact the Russians um, in near real time and, and ask them, hey, are you is that you? And and uh, and if so, uh, you know, cut it out. And, <laughs> and if you don't, you know, we're going to do something in response. Uh, so, but all that stuff is very much in its in its infancy. But yeah, really, really interesting uh, area to to think about. A lot of academics are are very much into exploring there.
2: That's really interesting. And when you're talking about the role that business entities have to play, it makes me think a lot about Facebook. We we've talked about disinformation campaigns a lot. Um, on social media and the role that platforms have to play, especially as we think about election cycles and we've got one coming up in the U.S., what has been your experience with investigating disinformation?
0: Yeah, so you know it, it's interesting because um, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, in in terms of sort of a a global you know framework for thinking about cyber issues, the U.S. obviously uh, is has been traditionally probably the leading proponent of free speech, free flow of information online. Um, And, you know, countries like Russia and China have tended to take a a different um, approach, and that's very much carried over into how we think about, um, you know, cyber issues. So for instance, the US, European countries talk about cyberspace and cybersecurity. Uh, Russia and China don't use that term they they instead talk about information security mm-hmm. which they mean to include all the things that we would consider the infrastructure the the networks the the devices um, but then also they think it's very important that uh, the information that is um, that is conveyed across platforms or that is made available that that information also has to be regulated and that, the narrative the, the, narrative power the narrative power and that and that Governments have a responsibility to, uh, ensure that, you know, that information is controlled and that individual citizens of a country have a responsibility to their governments and to each other, not to engage in, Mm -hmm. uh, online, you know, activities that could be, uh, disruptive or, or undermine the government. So, you know, that's kind of, there's this international framework. And so then when we start looking at, um, you know, for instance, what we saw during the 2016 and 2018 election cycles here in the US and what has been mirrored um, in, in many other settings around the globe, including in Europe, there are, you know, clearly nation states engaged in efforts to, uh, whether you think of it as disinformation or misinformation, but to use all the technologies that have been created by Facebook mm-hmm. and similar social media companies. To, to leverage those technologies in a way uh, that creates you know confusion that uh, exacerbates existing tensions that can even lead to people being uh, misinformed about uh, you know potentially the the place or date of, of where they 're supposed to go vote and so that that 's something that's that 's really come up as as an issue and and it, in a lot of ways um, it looks like the traditional kind of area of information warfare and uh psychological operations that you know militaries have engaged in uh throughout you know history uh, but now you can do it on on a scale and in in a and in a way that is very uh difficult to to be able to correctly identify or, or attribute who is is actually behind it mm-hmm. um which which makes it like really difficult so it's one thing to be able to identify that there are a bunch of actors accounts on Facebook or on Twitter that are uh, spreading, you know, a story that is demonstrably false about a political candidate. That's the easy part. Then understanding who's actually doing it and and is is the next step. And then, you know, there's sort of this idea of like, well, technical attribution, you can have a certain level of confidence that you know who who's done it. But then if it's uh, nation state. There's this issue of you know essentially political attribution. You know, what do you then do with the technical knowledge you've gained? Do you call out that other country publicly? Mm-hmm. Do you engage in um, you know some sort of response activity using your economic, intel, military, law enforcement tools? And and for governments, that has proven to be uh, an incredibly difficult uh, area to make decisions around. I, I recall. You know, being at the State Department as a senior cyber policy official during uh, the heart of the 2016 election cycle, and uh, sitting in on uh, many meetings at at the White House, and 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 watching across the government, uh, you know, all officials at all level up to the president, really struggling with, you know, how do you, what do you do in response to this kind of activity if if you believe that Russia is engaged in a large scale effort to sow mis and disinformation to affect your election uh process what do you do in response to that and and you know you can imagine that there is a huge range of of options right. that would get considered um but really hard to decide because again this is an, an evolving area where you know we don't have decades of experience knowing okay it wasn't a you know, it
1: wasn't a slow build like we saw from invention of the machine gun to trench warfare to like right. there fortunately the wars were st- conventional conflict was stretched out that we could sort of build on that but this technology yeah. came and it hit so fast and was adopted so widely <laughs> that it makes it more difficult to think about strategies and norms
0: yeah i mean i think in a, a a very obvious often observed but worth repeating you know point around all of this is that Law and policy and, and norms of behavior um, are always trail technology, right? And 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 you just you know hit it right on right on the head in terms of the particular technologies we're talking about are evolving so quickly uh, compared to traditional development of of you know whether it's aerospace capabilities or telecommunications capabilities that it's really uh, creating an even larger gap and time lag between a technology being. Uh, created, adopted, used, and then the laws, rules, et cetera, that, that, that are then like need to be considered and debated and, and pulled together. There also is this uh, persistent uh, gap between the people, you know, the individuals and companies who create technology and the policymakers, just a a real Mm -hmm. like lack of understanding on both sides of the other uh, you know, so companies creating technology, sure they may have certain regulations and laws they have to follow, but by and large, you know, not a lot of thought about, you know, what the legal or policy implications are of a new technology or are part of the entrepreneurial process. Policymakers at the same time often fail to understand new technologies around cyberspace and the internet. I think that was very yeah. clear from yeah. Zuckerberg's testimony before yes. Congress.
1: <laughs> yes. uh, those questions were not prepared by the millennial staffers. Um I did wanna I did wanna pivot a little bit from your government work into now putting the the private enterprise hat on. So behind the scenes in an investigative capacity at the level of government, I'm sure you had a a wider lens with which to view the cyber landscape. And I, you know, companies tend to rightly so focus on their own environments. I mean, that's their priority and that's what they have to focus on. But with the view of the larger landscape, I'm curious as to now coming back into the private sector, what would you impart to private enterprise? Like, can you give them something to better understand the risks they're facing? Because I think that they're only looking at part of the picture. Is there some trend that they should be innovating for? How do they prepare for these new risks?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it. one of the things that um, the observations that I've, I've heard uh, made to me by, say, large technology companies is, you know, that they're not monolithic, meaning that you know we often talk about oh the tech industry or the social mm-hmm. media companies, and um, they are you know if you're having a, a meaningful substantive you know d- debate about their role in in the ecosystem and and what individual companies should be doing to um, approach issues of, of cybersecurity and the like, you know they're very quick quick to point out that you know Microsoft's views aren't necessarily uh, reflective of anybody's interest other than Microsoft. So mm-hmm. if Microsoft says something, it doesn't mean that Google or Facebook or Twitter are going to agree with that. And in fact, you're seeing that right now, for instance, with how uh the major social media platforms are uh positioning themselves to deal with the upcoming 2018 election cycle. You know, everyone from Twitter saying, you know, no political ads to Facebook saying, you know, we're largely gonna um, you know, uh, leave the sort of the, the content and the targeting to individual, uh, you know, Facebook account mm-hmm. users to decide what privacy settings they want. So, you know, one thing stepping back though, you know, and kind of looking at this from, you know, the perspective of, of, you know, what's happened in the last few years to try to create more of a sort of holistic environment for dealing with cybersecurity here in the United States, um, cybersecurity has largely been a bipartisan a political issue so the policies that were put in place by the Bush administration were largely uh, you know kept um, as as we move through you know subsequent administrations the Obama administration even the Trump administration although they've issued a lot of uh, guidance on how the government, you know, approaches cybersecurity substantively. Almost none of it has changed from what President Obama put out. Mm-hmm. And one of the the key things that that has happened over the last few years is the government trying to um, create a way to bring together all these stakeholders, like industry. So, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology created yep. their cybersecurity framework, which is you know designed to be a tool for any enterprise of any size in the U.S internationally from a mom and pop, you know, small business to a huge global corporation to be able to have a framework for evaluating cybersecurity risks and making decisions. So I I think what we're seeing is that there are now tools that are out there um, that help companies of all sizes be able to think about these issues. And there also are more and more forums, um, industry, you know, organized trade group type activities, uh, you know, conferences um the you know securities and exchange commission the insurance industry have all been doing things to shape behavior um cuz kind of to answer your question i guess a little bit you know indirectly market forces do not seem to up to this point have had a a, a huge impact on um leading companies to adopt cybersecurity safeguards or privacy safeguards um as much as you know we see constant data breaches and, and large scale, um, activities affecting people's information, it, it still does not seem to have had a a huge impact on how people approach, um, you know, what they do online or their, people obviously are much more sensitized to, uh, the, 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 the threats they face to their financial or personal information, but that doesn't seem to have really had an impact on, uh, you know, how people, uh, behave and, and engage in, in, uh, you know, business or personal activities online. And, you know, most big companies have not shown a huge uh, desire to, uh, you know, embrace privacy or security and make that a, a selling point. Apple kind of differentiates itself in a lot of ways mm-hmm. by saying, you know, we don't, we're not going to use your information to sell you advertisements. But, but by and large, you know, we, we kind of live in a world where cybersecurity and, and, Information privacy are still things that, you know, the market just sort of hasn't seemed to put a huge premium on.
1: Yes. And I think that we may be, we're not yet at a tipping point, but we seem to be fast approaching one as um, Gen Z gets closer and closer to entering the workforce and becoming less dependent on parental income and actually becoming spenders. Uh, I think we see, um, you know, the emergence of DuckDuckGo, Brave, uh mozilla has new ad blocking software for example and just yesterday verizon announced a privacy first search engine um so i i think that there is beginning we're beginning to see that and to be fair things like ccpa the new york legislation gdpr if it's going to bring a financial penalty it's going to start to move some part of that market because if the penalty gets high enough it will become a market force unto itself. Right. Um, so uh, merging of consumer demand as younger consumers understand that their data is being used without their consent to uh, legislation and policymaking, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree with a lot of that. I mean, at least my anecdotal personal experience with, see undergrads at UVA um, in, in the classes I've taught there is they have a sophisticated understanding of, you know, how information is used by companies mm-hmm. and, and the privacy implications. But by and large, there's essentially kind of a an acceptance that that's right. just the way the world works. And when you talk to, say, you know, 18 to 20-year-olds about, you know, from a privacy perspective, what concerns you more? That Facebook is mining your information or Google is, you know, reading all your Gmails um, and using that information for targeted advertising? or the fact that your mom might decide to friend you on Facebook and it's mom friending you on Facebook. that is met with, you know, abject horror as an idea and, and not so much the, you know, the way in which the the information is being used. And, and you're right. I mean, a lot of the efforts that we're seeing, you know, particularly from the European union are, you know, government saying, Hey, people, you, you don't understand and appreciate that, you know, your data is being used in ways that, you you should be upset about it. And why aren't you upset? And so we as you know, we as as governments are going to uh, you know impose rules upon um, you know companies and individuals that again are not necessarily uh, things that you know the public, whether you're consumers or voters are are demanding. It's sort of a a top-down uh, effort to to impose standards. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just that there seems to be a disconnect between what, by and large, people are demanding from governments and from companies. <clears throat> well, when and, I think about yeah. systems of control,
1: it's much harder to see the digital infrastructure. But mom is a very real <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> system of control that's very tangible in, in one's life. Right, and yes.
2: it's, it's always seemed to me at first to be an education gap. But now that people are becoming more aware, I wonder why there is no urge and urgency around that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great, you know, question that, um, I think there's a lot of, of, uh, interesting opportunities for, you know, academic research and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and, and gathering more information about that. And, and maybe as more, you know, we're, we're starting to see, you know, more and more companies like Safeguard Cyber that are, you know, building a, a business around, you know, that's all about, you know, privacy protection, uh, you know, safeguarding against threats and, and identifying, uh, you know, malicious actors that might be following your Twitter feed. And I think as more and more of that information gets surfaced for people, it will allow them to individual consumers and, and companies to make a lot smarter choices about, um, what their interaction looks like in terms of, I don't want to have those Entities following me, or I do want to tighten up my controls. I, I think mm. a lot of it is just the lack of, um, you know, easy, transparent, uh, you know, tools for doing that. I mean, you can certainly go into Facebook or or Google and adjust your privacy settings, and and those you can find them, they've done a lot exactly, but they're <laughs> they're they're always buried deep in inside, you know, uh, you know the the settings, and so if you can take those kinds of. Uh, control, you know, tools and make them much more widely and easily usable, then I, I think you would see a lot of people adopting that. And um, so I do, I want to take a, a moment to return
1: back to something you said at the beginning of your journey, which is that um, you, you opted to become a judge advocate partly out of a sense of adventure. Um, so given your travels, um, let's uh, return to the idea of uh, adventure so on a quick anecdotal note what's sort of a a crazy trip that you've been on or an unexpected surprise in in crossing the oceans and and doing this work
0: yeah so I've been very fortunate uh, particularly with the state Department I was able to travel to about seventy five countries around the globe no, whoa s- <laughs> some of those trips were you know four hours in the country before <laughs> getting on a a, a a flight uh you know onwards but um The the part of the, so, you know, I'll kind of talk about three regions of the world that I've spent quite a bit of time in, Europe, Asia, and the Pacific, uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, when you get outside of uh, North America or Europe, so you travel around North America, you travel around Europe, you go to meetings, you see still lots of people carrying laptops, using email to communicate Mm -hmm. as their primary means of communication, um, you go to Asia, you know, and I'm thinking everywhere from Vietnam and 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 uh, Cambodia and Thailand to Singapore, Japan, Korea, and 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 uh, China is a whole different uh, you know place where you you know all of a sudden none of your apps work and you can't <laughs> can't get on anything. But you know, you when you go to Asia. Where you have many economies, uh, like you know, if you think back thirty to forty years, I mean, Korea was uh, very much a developing country, mm-hmm. and now you go there and it is the mm-hmm. future, the future, <laughs> yeah. And and the same with Japan, although it it has moved along that that journey a little bit faster. Um, and you see, you know, all these emerging technologies that are you know cutting edge things that you you say, why can't we have that back in the U.S. And then you go on to particularly sub-Saharan Africa and almost no one has a computer, a laptop, but they've got two or three phones that Mm -hmm. they're carrying around, um, you know, everywhere they go. And and you see that the future is not about, uh, you know, being tethered to a laptop or a computer. It's all about, you know, mobile. And, you know, being in places like, you know, Kenya or Tanzania and, you know, and talking to people about, you know, how they, um, have been able to leverage mobile technologies to change their lives and just the ability to, um, use very simple, you know, uh, communication capabilities to, you know, you're a fisherman and you're coming into port and, you know, you had a big catch of, you know, tuna that day and, and, you know, now being able to quickly uh communicate with a couple different fish markets and figure out which one needs tuna more than the others um is is cool but then also you know the adoption so indeed i think i you know it was in the
1: a few years ago when people the the shift was happening in the us to mobile banking like yeah all the banks were talking about mobile banking but it had already been in place in sub-saharan africa for many years because they leapfrogged the technology that was where people did all of their business so like mobile payments they were already doing it Mm -hmm. i remember in 2007 when i lived in japan you know the phones would have a retractable antenna and you could watch tv on it that's the year the iphone came out like they it was just leapfrogging and i think there were some other articles about how costa rica was being able to use mobile to save its rainforest because they basically didn't have to go through the entire period that we did of Laying landlines. They just right. leapfrogged that. So I th- that's an interesting point because I think our perception is that um, developing economies are somehow behind, but in many respects, they they could be quote unquote ahead, depending on if you're thinking about that as a linear time scale.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember being uh, on a safari in Kenya because I lucked out and had you know, like a two week trip and was in Senegal one week and then had to be in Nairobi the next and in between had a few days. And so I was able to, uh, go on a a short safari with a few of my colleagues and, you know, we were out in the middle of, of the Massamara, you know, just completely, you know, removed from any sign of civilization. Mm -hmm. And, but on our, our phones, we had, you know, five bars and better (laughs) cell service (laughs) than, you know, actually when we were back in Nairobi and, you know, when you're talking to people about issues like mobile payments. Impesa uh, is the mm-hmm. is the the banking application that is used across particularly uh, eastern Africa and you know hundreds of millions of people that otherwise would not have easy access to any kind of banking services use this very simple mobile application to um you know carry out essentially all their financial transactions and um yeah you're you're exactly right seeing. In other parts of the world, how quickly things are evolving and being adopted—that um, leapfrog what what we have, have slowly evolved through—is is really awe inspiring. That's good. That's interesting. It's a fresh it. perspective.
2: Yeah, that's incredible to think about the trends we've seen and how things change so quickly. And you've had a lot of experience. How do you see the future of cyber policy changing?
0: Well, I think going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, it's i think going to start to accelerate in terms of you know the technology is still always going to outstrip the sort of the the policy work but i think it's it's also getting a lot more sophisticated and enabled by uh you know technology to 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 evolve more quickly and i'm hoping what we're going to see is more of you know say baked in cybersecurity so instead of Products being released without any cybersecurity, you know, built into them, or without the ability to easily add and and upgrade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, privacy protections or how the information is is uh, you know used, that you're going to see more and more over time that that just becomes a core component of when whether it's a new online platform for communication or financial activities. Or it's a home device that allows you to, uh, you know, control some aspect of your of your uh, living environment or, you know, what happens in terms of technology uh, integrated into both traditional vehicles through their entertainment systems or autonomous vehicles that you're just going to, you know, that, that the policy and legal aspects are going to become much more baked into the development process, the product uh, creation and release process, and it's not going to be a external add-on secondary thought. Um, so I I I I'm I can't pretty like confident reverse that's engineer happen.
1: privacy into something that wasn't built for that in the first place. Right,
0: first. right. But beyond that, the another really big global trend that I I think is is worrying is, you know, we used to talk about uh, the balkanization of the internet until when I was at we used to talk about that when I was at the Justice Department. When I went to the State Department, one of the first things they 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 told us was we don't, you know, don't say Balkanization of the internet because that, you know, creates, you know, like bad feelings on, on the part of, of countries the, the and Balkans. peoples of the Balkans, <laughs> yeah. the Balkans. But this, this idea that, um, you know, countries are going to create their own closed environments, whether you think of sort of the great firewall of China mm-hmm. or other countries that, you know, Russia have, recently for, for years, yeah, have for years talked about sort of the theory of, being able to have a, a contained environment that, you know, their own internet that doesn't touch the rest of the global internet, you know, always seem like, oh, that that's never going to happen. But but the reality is it's happening and it's happening fairly quickly. And a lot of it is enabled by uh, technology. And, you know, when you think about sort of the distribution of countries across the globe in terms of, you know, democracies and the the way that we think of a democracy or that you would see in Europe, compared to um you know governments that even are ostensibly democracies but you know it, it really have you know one party control over what happens in their country there are an enormous number of countries that seem very uh seduced attracted by the approach that you know China has been promulgating and so i think we are starting to see a lot of um sort of fracturing and walling off of what the global uh you know cyberspace information space looks like. And, uh, and it's hard to see how that is a good, a good trend. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great to see indigenous or, you know, like countries other than this, the U S and a few others being, uh, innovation hubs for creating new technology. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, platforms and, and, and products and companies are being created in China, which is great to see the innovation, but if they're being created so that Chinese don't ever have to think about using Facebook or Amazon or any non-Chinese company that, you know, sort of that reverse globalization trend, uh, yeah, it introduces tribalism
1: into that narrative power structure, right? That's like the, I only understand these stories, which is, we're already having echo chamber problems as it is, but if you actually wall off the infrastructure, it becomes much more, uh, extreme. Um, uh, last year, Ashley had the good pleasure of interviewing, uh, Colonel Mark Miles from US you know, cyber command, and he was talking about collaboration, uh, across governments. And I think that's getting better. Do, do you also see a role or in, in, uh, your travels for greater collaboration across enterprises? Again, I go back to the question of certain companies tend to, well, all companies focus on themselves as they must, but the threat landscape is so much bigger than themselves. And, you know, we, we have um, Facebook's threat exchange, we have virus total. We have these sort of no more ransom. Um, What is the role that you see for like greater uh, consortiums or collaboration efforts to pull data and pull, I guess, also solutions in the case of no more ransom.
0: Yeah. um, Look, dealing with these challenges of say cybersecurity or, any kind of technology challenges, uh, it has to be a team sport, meaning that there's a role for government, for companies, uh, you know, different industries to to work together collaboratively to to deal with these things. And, you know, traditionally in the US and European countries, there's been, you know, lots of concerns raised by companies about long antitrust lines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't share information with my competitors because, you know, they, it, it will violate those kinds of, of laws and and what the U.S. and and European uh, legal regimes have have done, and the governments have have really tried to emphasize over the last few years to push for more information sharing between governments and companies, and and between companies within industries, across uh, industries, um, has been to try to you know provide some legal reassurance that these things can be done it should be done they they don't implicate um, you know government action around antitrust and things like that and so yeah you you've seen a lot of um, particularly within certain industries like financial industry, um, already heavily regulated industries, where uh, there was already a framework for um, you know thinking about themselves. Okay, you know the financial industry, you know the banks already had a lot of ways that they had built connective tissue around uh, working together, and so you know cyber has been, I think, kind of a natural extension of that. So you've seen you know certain industries that have really done a robust job of. Building threat exchanges of building uh, ways to share information, and and that's evolving and spreading out um, a lot more. Um, but still, it it seems that you know kind of it it's largely been confined to certain industries that that can can share information. There are also just been enormous challenges with um, you know what do you do with information that you share, or how do you even decide what to share from the standpoint of if you're you know, a massive global company or even just a huge national U.S. bank, until very recently and with the aid of machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's been really hard to take all that data that you may be seeing across your computer networks about threats and, and, and the like and compile it and and sort through it and decide you know what is actually useful and actionable and and could be shared and can I do it in a way that anonymizes and strips out any customer information and the like and we're finally at that that tipping point i think mm-hmm. where the technology particularly machine learning ai have made it possible uh to do large scale automated uh threat sharing and 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 the like and so i think going forward, we're going to see a lot more of that just because it's now something that, uh, can be done. And again, you know, companies like Safeguard are building products that allow us to, um, you know, broadly share that kind of information, um, within companies, across companies and the like. Teamwork makes the dream work y'all. Um, well,
1: I think that's all the time that we have for today, but thank you very much, uh, for your time. We're happy to have you on board. but I'm sure this is not the last that we'll speak, um, especially as uh, we head into election season. Um, but yeah, well, we definitely want to follow up on some of the stuff you've been doing with the the National Guard and also on the on the education front. But uh, but that is all the time we have for today.
0: Hey, thanks for inviting me uh, to to uh, be a guest on the podcast. It's it's been great, and uh, and I look forward to uh, seeing how you edit this and, and what it all sounds like once it's up <laughs> up posted. That's right. All right. So the takeaway is
1: block bad actors and your mom,
2: and we're out. And we're out. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, In the meantime, we give our thanks to Abby Bruce, as ever, for sound design and production, Matias Cefaletti for our theme music, and until next time, stay safe. This is The Safeguard, Zero Hour, signing off.